Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, a conversation that I had with legendary radio broadcaster in West Virginia, Howard Monroe, about my argument that America has become a gerontocracy, a system set up to benefit and focus on the needs of seniors at the expense of younger generations, and why we need to fix that. Poverty. The poverty line in this country 
is low. And so if you are under the poverty line, you are living in a debilitating condition. You are really poor. So that is really my point. It is not that I have it out for seniors. If, if you look at this picture, who should we be helping? Who should we be investing in in this country? I think we have gotten badly, badly out of whack. Seem to reflect to some extent your maybe not the decrease in support for seniors, but it does seem to acknowledge that we have not done enough for younger poor folks. This is the best way to phrase it: younger poor folks. The Build Back Better plan does seem to refocus some of our federal efforts onto onto maybe more productive uses. Yes, yes, and it's part of an entire agenda. So. Early this year, we passed the American Rescue Plan, and that was focused largely on economic support for American families during the end phase, we hope, of the economic recession caused by the pandemic. And one of the things it did was provide more child tax credits to families. Now, what did that do? And they were refundable. I'm not going to get into the weeds on this, but it basically means if you don't owe that much tax, you get a credit. You actually get a check in the mail. You still get money. And so what did that do? It lifted 5 million American children out of poverty. 5 million children out of poverty. So that was an awfully good thing. that's been done in, in just this short period of time that that child care tax credit has been available. That is right. That is right. But we have some numbers about that. We've talked about here in West Virginia. The number of families that have already seen children rising out of poverty, purely because of that one program, which I think they tripped back, extending that every day in the next budget that they have there. But nonetheless, it actually it actually has shown success. There was verifiable success for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, this is a side note. This is me editorializing for a second. But my favorite historical writer, Robert Caro, who wrote the Lyndon Johnson biographies, I know I'm really nerding out here. But one of the things one of the things that he says is power doesn't corrupt. You know the saying power corrupts. And he says, No, no, no. It's not that power corrupts. Power reveals. Power reveals what you're all about. And I'm a Democrat, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to make any bones about that. But what did Donald Trump do when he got in office? What was his one legislative achievement, really? Passing the Trump tax cuts, 80% of which went to the very wealthiest Americans. Zero kids lifted out of poverty in the Trump tax cuts. What did Joe Biden do when he got into office? His very first thing, he lifted 5 million American children out of poverty. Power reveals. Power reveals. But anyway, yes. So that was a very good start. Uh, but we have a lot further to go. We have, a, we have much further to go. Um, there are too many American children who remain in poverty. And it's not just about poverty. Because, I mean, this applies to, to all of us. This applies to lower income but not poverty-stricken families. This, this applies to middle-income families. We know that investment, the economic return that we all get throughout society from investing in younger Americans, are much higher, much higher. We all benefit.
when we invest in younger people. And so, for example, the economic return from providing pre-K to four-year-olds is $83 billion for each cohort of kids. This group of four-year-olds, then the next group of four-year-olds, $83 billion each time. We could keep racking that up, and that's what they're trying to do in the Build Back Better bill. So, yes, much further to go, but Build Back Better is on the right pathway. Solution. 
benefits, um, do more means testing, Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it all comes down to we should not be giving lavish benefits to the wealthy. Um, and that's, that's the kind of thing that normally, you know, it's funny. If I said that sentence to a group of Democrats, they would cheer. <laughs> if I were a candidate. Yeah, yeah. Right, we need to stop. I, I mean, this is seriously an applause line that could come right out of the mouth of Bernie Sanders. We need to stop giving away benefits to millionaires and billionaires. Woo! And everyone starts, well, uh, okay, here, here's a little fact uh, for you. There are 4 million retiree households that have more than a million dollars in investable assets today. There are 2 million senior citizen households who earn, earn, over $200,000 a year after retirement. Those folks get a benefit of starting Social Security benefits of $50,000 per person. I believe that that is not right. That we don't need to be, I mean, this is the kind of thing that Democrats are supposed to be for is, is progressive benefits, progressive taxation. Give assistance, a leg up to people who need it so that they can provide for themselves, that's what you get when you invest in young people. So, yes, the answer is we need to think about Social Security and Medicare in the way that they were originally intended. Social Security is not a savings program. That was a mistake that George W. Bush made. Remember 2005, he famously stands up and announces his plan to privatize Social Security. He says, I have political capital from the 2004 election. I intend to spend it. And we're going to privatize Social Security. Well, what did he mean? He means we're going to treat Social Security like a bank account. You, you make contributions, interest, close with interest, and then you, you take it out. Well, that's, that's not what Social Security is. Social Security is insurance. Medicare is insurance. It's insurance against being poor and not having enough money for health when you are a senior citizen. Now, the way insurance works is you pay premiums. You, you make contributions along the way so that the insurance will be there if something bad happens. Now, if you make insurance payments for anything in your life, your house, your car, whatever it is, then you collect if something bad happens. If nothing bad happens, then you don't collect. But it's not like you call up the insurance company and you say, hey, I've made contributions for the last 30 years, so send me my money back. That's kind of good. Precisely. And that's, we've kind of gotten ourselves willfully into this position because, you know, it's, it's politically good to advocate for seniors. So we all say it. Democrats say it. Republicans say it. We all say, oh, it's your money. We want you to get everything that you've earned. Of course we want to do that. Seniors vote the most. So we, we want to. I was just going to make that point. Here's a, here's a reality. You're not going to change a lot of this for no other reason than seniors are the ones who vote. And we ain't voting for them. I shouldn't say that because I don't want to use it for what you're saying. I think it can sound like that. Seniors are useful. Seniors are not going to vote for individuals who say they're going to touch Social Security, modify Social Security, change Medicare, 
which the concept of the that's just, I mean, it's called the third rail for a reason. And one of the reasons is we vote, the other people don't, unless they're really, really poor. Right, and kids don't vote at all, which is fine. I mean, you know, the political judgment of children, um, you know, I, that, that's fine. We can keep kids not voting. On the other hand, they don't get to have a voice in their interests. And so, yeah, it becomes it, it, it becomes a, an ingrained situation that's very, very hard to undo and takes a great deal of I jump, you jump, let's have political courage together. And who is betting on that proposition happening in Washington anytime soon? Nobody. But I, I just felt in writing this article that it was important to say out loud what we're all afraid to say out loud, which is love senior citizens. Want to defend the idea of helping senior citizens. It is shameful, the situation we used to have in this country. Senior citizens living out their lives in, in, in poverty. That's wrong. I'm against that. We should make sure it doesn't happen. I'm also against rich senior citizens getting handouts from the government that they truly do not need. You, if you're earning $200,000 a year, you don't need another fifty. You just don't, not when there are actual poor people who we could be helping. Or, you know, Republicans would say, well, let's not spend that money at all. Okay, I'm willing to have that debate. But what we should not be doing is when when we say let's, let's not cut taxes for the wealthy, which is what Democrats all said during the Trump tax cuts, let's not give the wealthy this giant handout. Why is that not the exact same argument? when it comes to spending on the wealthy. Yeah, that's a point. All right, so, you know, you know I like to come back. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm tough. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't feel like you really, I don't feel like you actually want to take money out of my pocket. I am a fan of the movie Throw Mama from the Train, but that's, that's a whole other story. I know I'm going to get hate mail, and all I ask of people, all I ask is read read the argument first, and then send me hate mail. If, 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 we want, if someone wants to engage with me on the facts of the case or the argument as I'm making it, that's fair game. It's not like I have some kind of a privileged position in America where what I say is definitely right. Um, I actually did have someone re- respond on Twitter, check your privilege, dude. Um, and with all due respect to the PC frat bro, I- I'm arguing for privileged people not to get so much. So I'm not sure I understand that one. But sure, I'm going to get hate mail. And it goes to your point. It goes to your earlier point. This is so hard to do because it's always easy to pander to a voting group that votes a lot and and to be easy and glib about this. And so, yeah, I mean, in writing this, I've, I've definitively laid down my marker that I'm probably never going to be a candidate for public office. <laughs> I've written the oppo research for my for my opponent right there. My wife is thrilled. It is, it is a difficult issue because... Your statistics are there. I get the percentages of poor senior voting seniors and things like that, and the large amount of wealth in this country. But I'm just thinking, for example, 
about that is I do collect Social Security. And it really just goes into sort of savings accounts. I mean, I'm not trying to sound like I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, I think Congress take care of our pockets and the idea of having a lot of debt is received. Social Security is kind of like extra money. Uh, I mean, it is. And I can say that. I also know I have one member in our family who literally has to wait every month to get the check to order my food. So there are people who seriously need to Social Security and have a public health assistance. And then there are some of us who may be serious to get them to take care of you, but supposedly the last things I would be able to get them. Just give it back, I understand. I'm going to be okay with that. It's because we're not all the same government. There's some different perspectives here. And then again, we throw in, it's not just revert what they're suggesting. Is it just seniors get too much? Is that younger folks don't get enough of that? Certainly, we're not going to get into this. Very quick thoughts about that. I mean, one is, that is, with a $31 trillion cash shortfall in Social Security over the next 30 years, I want, one of the reasons I want to fix this is so that Social Security is there for your friends and family members who need that for food. They, they need that next check, right? We need to preserve it for the people who need it. And if we don't do that, then that's who's going to really lose. Not the people who don't need it. It's the people who really need it who are going to lose. So it's the people who need it the most who should be most invested in, in these fixes and trimming back. The other thought is, the reason I'm not going to convince an awful lot of people is you don't convince people with facts. You don't convince people with numbers. I mean, you were saying right before I, I came on the air, you were talking about inflation. And the fact of the matter is inflation is not historically that high, and the economy is going absolutely gangbusters, and people are much, much better off than they were two years ago. Median savings, the median savings account is much, much higher than it was two years ago, and 30 million of the 42 million jobs created in the U.S. since 1989 have been created under Democratic presidents. Joe Biden has created more jobs than the last three Republican presidents. But numbers don't convince people, so I don't expect to convince people with my argument either. <laughs> well, you have the courage to write it, Ken. I think it's a courage to write I'm looking forward to it. Happy Veterans Day. It's Matt Robeson is our one of our political consultants. Should I let him come back, Pepper, or not? Well, I think he made a good argument. You ought to let him come back. Okay. All right. Because I saw this piece. It's on a website called Alter Deck. And Matt is a regular writer for that. He writes for news movies on the radio. And I saw this piece. America has become a gerontocracy. That is, old people are running. America has become a gerontocracy. It's time to overthrow it, he said. What? What? He talking about spending too much money on senior citizens and going to change that around and talking about Social Security companies. Hey, get your hands out of my pocket, boy! Let me tell you, the older you get, the more you pay attention to this this kind of stuff. But he...
whole thing for someone to write because uh, it's some sort of Whatever, nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to get into the situation. But I was on, though. I guess it's, you know, it's interesting to go back because I can speak much more. It's truth of the matter, the industry would be a problem that we have coming here to talk about counseling and so on. You go back and you have the spirit that comes in to the market today. That's the money. But I can only have a family member who could not eat, who could not eat, and does not eat until the child comes in. And now we move on to a slightly different topic, the increase in extreme rhetoric, infighting, and actual glorification of political violence, especially among Republicans in Congress. It's an issue that's been on everyone's minds this week around the censuring of Congressman Paul Gosar, and we talked about it on Howard's show. Good morning. Who knew that the movie Death Wish was uh, actually about me and it was about politics? And apparently, I want to be canceled. I want to be canceled by Howard Monroe. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll see how far I get. I bet I'm not the only one that does have a little concern about your autobiography stuff, right? Well, I would say, um, you know, first of all, the editors at Alternet were very kind to me. They did not title the piece as provocatively as they could have. They could have said, throw mama from the train. They could have said, you know, like, end all seniors. They, you know, they, they went with something kind of benign. Um, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't trigger as many people as I thought I would. And I actually got a lot of, a lot of reasonable responses, people saying, Yes, I kind of agree with you. You know, you make a good point. Of course, it's a lot easier to say that in the abstract than, you know, when it's you. But that's really my point. I'm not talking about most normal people. If you know a ton of super wealthy seniors, then, you know, congratulations to them. I'm not talking to, I'm not talking to most regular people. Regular people. Just old people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. Just a person, just a reminder, you will be old. You will be old. Yeah. You're, you're presuming something there. You, you don't know my reckless life. I don't know what I'm not doing. I'm not giving debit cards to my kids. That's, that's where I draw the line. I'm going to get that bit later on, but there is a point. It's all that's returned. Somewhere I've got a story here. Parents, parents decided cash is not the best way for their lives. They're giving their kids a debit card. I don't know. So. But I do want to talk about politics here, and you and I talked a good bit about the divisions that we've seen inside the Democratic Party this last year. So the progressive wing, the major wing, the centrist versus the left, and there's a lot of infighting inside the Democratic Party. Um, but it seems to me the Republicans have some of their own problems. They're not quite as monolithic as we have perceive them to be. I think this really, really came to light when we saw the 13 House Republicans, including West Virginia's own Nick McKinley, who voted in favor of the bipartisan infrastructure. Are things changing a little bit in the Republican Party? I think they are. And this is a, this is an area where 
I think we have to be careful because they're changing and they're changing fast. And kind of like at the beginning of the pandemic, when experts and scientists were saying, hey, we need to get eyes on this thing. We need to do testing so that we know what's going on and where and start to get a handle on it. I think we're still trying to get a handle on what's happening in the Republican Party. We're trying to get eyes on this thing. There's been some really interesting deep dive polling on this, and I'm not going not gonna to delve into a lot of details about it because I think it's premature. And also, you know that I have some problems with polling. But I think we know enough at this point to say, yeah, there are there is a lot more, I want to say diversity, that's not really the right word when you're talking about the Republican Party, but there, there's a lot more difference. There, there's, there's some subtle differences within the texture of the Republican Party that have emerged in the last five years or so. And the question really is, are they going to grow? And, and, and you know, I, I'm happy to, to go a little deeper on, on any of these themes. You know, the final thing I, I will say is kind of a preliminary, though, is that for a long, long time, the classic mistake that people would make in talking about analyzing and writing about American politics is they would treat the Republican Party and the Democratic Party as mirror images of each other. They would assume that the thing to do in the Republican Party is if you want to compete in Republican circles, compete to be more conservative. And, and you saw that, really, for, for many, many years. That was the name of the game, be more conservative, because the Republican Party was pretty darn homogenous, right? It was like, you know, do you want vanilla bean or do you want old-fashioned vanilla, right? And the Democratic Party was not like that at all. The Democratic Party is a coalition of different interest groups, different demographic groups. It is wildly different. You know, there, there are as many as five different types of voter, and actually maybe even more, that make up the so-called base of the Democratic Party. Whereas on the Republican side, you pretty much knew, you know, you had a pretty good mental image of, of who the core base Republican Party voter was. But that's changing. That's changing. And I think it's, it's subtly different now. If you will, of the Republican Party, you have the traditional, I guess you call the centrist base, centrist Republican base. You have the traditional conservatives. You have the Trump, what you call them, the Trump conservatives. It's a totally different than the traditional conservatives. Uh, you still have, you have a handful of Republicans who are still moderate enough to actually think about voting across the aisle and so on. I think that we lost the sense of that during the Trump era because Trump was such a dominant figure that everything seemed to just sort of fall under the Trump umbrella. And even right after uh, the election of Biden, we still got the sense that Trump just had everybody in his pocket. But we've seen a couple of occasions now. We saw the number of Republicans who voted for impeachment and the 13 Republicans who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. We're seeing, I don't see this but we're seeing more, more members of the party who are willing to branch out a little bit. The interesting thing, of course, now is the party wants to bring them back, but punish them because they've stepped out. Yeah, that, that is interesting. And I, for a long time, 
there's been there has been a coalition of sorts in the Republican Party. I mean, I was joking about old-fashioned vanilla versus vanilla bean or French vanilla, whatever it is. But, I mean, there, there were some different strands within the Republican Party. There were business conservatives and there were social conservatives. You had kind of the Christian coalition type and the Main Street Republican. There's actually, that's what they call themselves. They call themselves Main Street Republicans or pro-selection. And so, you know, there was there was a little bit of coalition there, and the Christian conservatives emphasized cultural issues more, and and business conservatives emphasized business issues more. But it's not like those folks were, like, wildly different from one another. And the key, to your point, is Ronald Reagan was famous within the Republican Party for creating an 11th commandment. Remember, remember that movie, History of the World, Part One, where Moses comes down and he's got he's holding the tablets and he's like, "I bring you these 15, and he drops one and shatters. I mean, ten, ten commandments. Well, Ronald Reagan created an eleventh commandment, which is, "Thou shalt not speak ill of a fellow Republican." And for a long time, Republicans were pretty darn disciplined about that, and you wouldn't see if they would, you know, if they decided to be bipartisan, if if they were from a slightly different strand of the party, you would not see this kind of internal vitriol. But now you are. Well, what's the difference? Well, duh. It's Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump literally using every channel he has calling. I mean, we're familiar with him inciting violence and an insurrection in the Capitol. He has literally called for this. And his acolyte, his right-hand woman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, has literally called for this, is literally calling on people, saying, hey, here's the phone number, call these people up, and, uh, you know, go after them, threaten their family. Yeah, we, we have well, gotten to that point. At least one Republican congressman did share a voicemail that you got uh, where he was feeling the threat. He was called a traitor. I mean, it's not a voicemail that can play on the radio because of the lack of exposure or something like that. It's CNN playing the voicemail. He and his family uh, were basically threatened. I hope everybody in your Cleveland family dies, said the So there was a lot of vitriol out there. Well, I'll tell you, you know, when I was a congressional staffer, you got a certain percentage of hate mail, then it became hate facts, then it became hate email, um, and now you get it on social media. Um, and you all the time would get would get voicemails, and so there, there's always been a certain amount of that. It was very rare to come from within your own party, um, and, and that's what I think. You know, obviously we're seeing with Republicans now, and it it is it is disturbing. And I think part of what's happened here, and it, it seems maybe a little glib to put it this way, is look, we all know that the country has become even more polarized. But one of the things that we, we don't talk about, even when we talk about, for example, partisan gerrymandering, the fact that most people are in safe districts, is that it has become far more relevant for most politicians to worry about your primary election than your general election. So if you define crossover members of Congress 
as people who represent districts, which favors the opposite party in the last presidential election. We've gone down. In 2018, we still had 41 crossover representatives. That is, people who, who either in their district, the majority favored Clinton or Trump, and they're, and they're from the opposite party. Well, that lowered down to 34. 34 out of 435 representatives now represent crossover districts, and that number has been going down and down and down. And already by 2017, 61% of voters were voting in counties in this country that were landslide counties, meaning one party or the other in the last presidential election had gotten at least 60% of the vote. So what's happening is most of us are living in partisan bubbles, partisan enclaves, and our representatives are a lot more worried about getting outflanked to the right or the left, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, than they are about their general election opponent. Well, what happens in that circumstance? When, when all the competition is to be who can be more of a Democrat or more of a Republican, you get these crazy kinds of political reactions and, and fights being picked. Now, we've been talking about it, as you said, among Democrats all year when it comes to legislation, right? It's Democrat on Democrat violence. And now we're having it on the Republican side when it comes to who, you know, who, who has the gumption to turn against Donald Trump by voting for something good for America. And, and that's where we're at, is any divergence from the dear leader, Donald Trump, it makes you a little bit less of a Republican, a little bit less of a dyed-in-the-wool Trumpite, and that opens you up for this kind of thing. Trump himself has been very clear in responding to the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I mean, he had no comment, as far as I can tell, no real comment on the, the value of the bill. You know, didn't really give any reasons. It's too expensive, or it's this, that, and the other. His argument was that 13 Republicans who voted for the bill gave the Democrats a win. All Trump was talking about was the politics of it. If you let the Democrats have a win, that's bad for the Republican Party. Republicans who voted for the bill say, no, I'm looking at the nature of the bill. And again, in West Virginia, uh, Dave McKinley, uh, his station recently, I mean, he really basically said, you know, screw you. I'm, you know, I'm going to, the bill was good for my state. I'm going to do that. You want to chastise me? There was even talk bad about uh, taking the committee assignments away. I think that was his past, but. There have been some talk about taking the committee assignments away of the 13 who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure. Yeah, that's what's truly disturbing and truly crazy about this is, you know, if this were a policy disagreement, if this were, hey, if this were even about Build Back Better and it was, hey, you know, we don't believe in any additional social needs spending by the government. We're, we're just against it. Okay. You, that, that's at least a policy disagreement. But as you say, this is just pure politics. And, you know, the, the chairman of the Budget Committee, he's an immensely powerful guy, Congressman John Yarmuth of Kentucky, was on your regular listeners will know that I host a radio show and a podcast called Beyond Politics. I hope people will check it out, subscribe to it, because we get a lot of interesting folks. And we were interviewing 
John Yarmuth of Kentucky, the, the budget chairman. He's the guy who is behind all of these things. He's behind the reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better bill. You know, he's the one who's in the room trying to bring Democrats together on this. And he also, like I said, is from Kentucky. And he's shared a delegation with Mitch McConnell for decades. In fact, he was a Republican 40 years ago. He used to be a political ally of Mitch McConnell. And so I asked him about Mitch McConnell. What, what do people not understand about him? And Congressman Yarmouth said, the thing that people don't really appreciate is that he has absolutely no policy agenda. There's nothing he wants to accomplish. There's nothing he wants to do. He simply wants power for power's sake. And so that's what you're seeing. That is a wonderful summation of where we're at under Donald Trump's Republican Party. I mean, look, in my, in my professional career, I've worked with a ton of Republicans in a really great way, in a really productive way. One of my proudest achievements as a staffer was creating a, a, an economic development commission for the ice belt, the, the, the upper northern belt of New England. It actually economically and demographically looks a lot like West Virginia. In fact, we modeled it on the Appalachian Regional Commission, which is focused largely on West Virginia and Kentucky and all of these areas. And we created it, and in the infrastructure bill, by the way, we got $150 million. That's something that we created about a dozen years ago. Well, how did that happen? It happened because behind the scenes, I'm giving myself a little more credit here, but I, I mean the elected people. But Republicans and Democrats work together. My best allies, my best friends working on that were the Republicans. We, we, were, we were hand in glove together on that, and it got done, and we're helping we're creating thousands of jobs now for people who need it. It doesn't matter political party. We, we got that done together because we had a shared vision of something that we could accomplish. Well, let me ask you this. I have to move on here real quick, but let me ask you about that. So, could that be done today? Well, there are 13 Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill, and it did pass with 69 total votes in the U.S. Senate. And so, and, and we're signing it. it it's, the signing ceremony is today. And some Republicans are showing up to it. So, yes, but it has become awfully hard, and I wouldn't expect a heck of a lot more of it. I'm waiting to see, uh, in our area in West Virginia, for example, if somebody voted for the bill, the other two congresspeople, like Carol Miller and Alex Brady, they voted against it. I would be curious to see if Boone and Miller show up for any of the check um, representations for the ground ratings. Will they take credit for the bill that they voted against? I'm always curious to see if you have the best to show up and say, well, I voted for it. I voted against it. But hey, I'm here to say, look at what I've done. Well, I mean, we already know that in the House version of the infrastructure bill, Republicans requested something on the order of a billion dollars of earmarked funding and then voted against it. So, like, yes, I mean, it, we'll, we'll see. I'm not going to run good talking to you. I appreciate it. I guess uh, I'll, I'll forgive your gerontocracy concerns and continue that conversation. <laughs> I appreciate that. We'll get together again in the near future. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Yeah.
Thank you. Check out Bass Podcast, the Great Ideas Podcast, the Beyond Politics Podcast. You can find them wherever you find podcasts, uh, whatever podcast platform you use, Apple Podcasts or what have you. Uh, Bass are on there frequently. I'm on there with it. Uh, the groups and segments like this, those up, he puts those up on his own podcast. So check it out. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Politics. We'll see you next week. <laughs>